And despite that these sciences were not in a scientific way as known today, alchemy is the origin of modern logic. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, dear listeners, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, and welcome to another episode of the Alchemy of Truth. I guess you could call this the third season. And welcome. This is your host, Nasr Khatib. And with me also, I have my co-host, Amr Sari. Amr, salam alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. How are you, Nasr? Alhamdulillah, very good. How are you? Long time. Was, uh, alhamdulillah. I uh, was busy with work. And I was busy work. as well. But alhamdulillah, we're back into the swing of things to uh, entertain and inform our wide listener base. Inshallah. So looking forward to another exciting uh, alchemy of truth. I'm sure it's going to be incredibly exciting, inshallah. Mm. And with us today, we have a number of guests. So We're uh, covering a range of topics. Tonight. We are covering a range of topics. So I, we have with us today, I mean, usually we wait uh, for our guests uh, until we actually present them, but we would like uh, her to take part from the very beginning. So with us here today is Asma Fahmi. Hello, assalamualaikum. Alaikum Now, Asma, the mic is in front of you. It's not going to come to you. You have to pull it to you. It's scary. Uh, it's fine. It's just the mic. Um, <laughs> Welcome so, to the show. Thank you. Thanks mm. for having me. Asma is a very active member in the Muslim community and outside the Muslim community as well. Uh, her role is... I'm a research assistant. Research assistant. Yes, yes, her role is research assistant and she assists in researches. <laughs> Apparently she does research. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's research. Anyways, and we also have with us our special guest uh, who's going to be telling us about his range of uh, shoes is uh, Umar Al-Rawi. So, Umar, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa Umar uh, is just basically here to visit <coughs> and to tell us a little bit about his uh, new range of uh, shoes. So Umar is an industrial designer, but he also designs items of fashion, of which I just bought one item of fashion, a pair of shoes. And uh, Amr as well bought a pair of shoes without even knowing. All of a sudden, he was forking out his cash. What can I say? Um, I'm a very impulsive buyer, and I saw him. I, s- I just had to get him. No, they, they are the type of shoes that you just have to get. They're, they're a nice-looking pair of shoes, I yeah, have to say. Very, very fashionable. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, yeah. I don't usually um, go gay for shoes, but I was quite excited about these shoes. Alhamdulillah. So, um, we'll let the one go to the keeper. Okay. <laughs> yes, inshallah. And we'll be um, talking to Ahmed later on as well, inshallah. So let us uh, go to the first part of our show, which is about uh, my trip to Egypt. Usually we don't talk about... Um, our trips, but uh, since it was a very exciting trip, and also we, we did speak to uh, Amr when he came back from his Hajj trip, so we're going to be speaking about that a little bit. And Amr has prepared some questions for me. Yes, I mean, uh, how many countries did you visit in that short uh, space of time? I mean, you went to Egypt, I mean, you spent the majority of the time there. Uh, what other countries did you visit a lot along the way before we, we tackle Egypt? Uh, well, I visited uh, the UAE as well, but that was mostly work-related. I yeah. uh, went to um, Qatar and Bahrain and Lebanon as well. But I was just there for a day or two. And it was mostly for work. So even though I was blown away by Lebanon and how beautiful it was, I was only there for one day. So it was actually very painful to have to leave it again. Interesting choice of words, blown away by <laughs> Lebanon. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually it's very strange. It was the safest place I felt really? in all the Middle East. The friendliest people. Safer than Halton Street? Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> Dude. I think I have a, um, a theory now that when Lebanese people reach a certain percentage, they're dangerous. Mm. But then when they reach, <laughs> um, oh, no. when they reach a, a larger percentage, they're right. the most beautiful people on earth. Mm. So just make sure that they're not 30%. Okay. Like if you increase the Lebanese people in Australia much more than now, <laughs> Australia's going to be heaven. This is my um, theory. Wow. Yeah. I'm not so, an anthropologist. So you should publish that. Yeah, I mean, it's mind-blowing. Sure. We'll, we'll have to do our research on, uh, on, uh, on your findings on that one, <laughs> on your theories on that one. Uh, but tell us more about uh, your experiences in Egypt. I mean, what, were the, what was the people like? How's, uh, how's democracy treating uh, the people of Cairo? Well, um, it was actually very interesting uh, because we made sure we spoke with as many people as possible about what was happening in Egypt at the time. And people were generally not happy. Um, it just seems that um, with what's happening, it's really affected the um, tourism. So Egypt has a lot of uh, industries, it had a lot of uh, resources, but the only thing that really has a trickle-down effect that can help the regular Egyptian is tourism. And well, so that's, that's the biggest part of the Egyptian economy. They don't have, uh, they're not endowed in natural resources like the other parts of the Middle East, mm. so they rely yeah. heavily on, on the tourism. Didn't the Mubarak clan take the profits of that anyway? But it's not just that. I mean, it's anything from... It's not from like the people are benefiting from it. 
you know, under Mubarak because they would. They, know, they, 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 that was very true. That they, was very they, true. They would get the scraps, like seagulls with the chips and stuff. But uh, that, I mean, yeah. that's that's exactly it, really, because mm. all the taxi drivers, for example, would benefit. Um, on the on the uh, Nile River, for example, I saw no less than fifty boats who used to just go out all the time, and you had no space. You'd have to wait for a while to be able to get a boat. Now they're just sort of like parked by the river, trying to fill out one or two of them. Um, there's, you know, people selling things on the side of the road, guides, all of these people who would, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis always benefit from having, get, um, you know, tourists around, basically just had no work all of a sudden. And so things were becoming very difficult for them and they were noticing it because it's been a couple of months for them, seven, eight months that they have no work at all. So it was, it was very painful to see them like that. I mean, a community or, uh, you know, a people that um, have been pushed so far to the edge of, poverty and humiliation uh, and yet still I, I saw them uh, in them uh, such welcoming spirit such you know good spirits as well um, incredibly warm and hospitable people who always try to overcharge me. Are they me. optimistic about the future or um, do they regret the, the revolution? Yeah I mean look they were upset and they kept speaking badly against Morsi so whenever yeah. we ask them you know how do you feel about Morsi how do you feel about the Muslim Brotherhood like oh you know, they were good when they were the um, opposition, Opposition, but now they don't know what they're doing. Uh, they're just making things more difficult for us. I mean, for them, they don't really understand the, the intricacies of the political process that's happening now and what's happening with, with different uh, political parties and, you know, external and internal forces. All they know is they used to be able to live regularly comfortably. They've, they've uh, sort of uh, trained and become used to living within a certain lifestyle under Mubarak. And with Egypt, with, with Mursi, it's become very difficult. And they decided, they thought it would be just for a few weeks and a few months, but it's been a while now. So they're becoming more nervous, more angry, uh, and more upset with, with Mursi and with the government. Hmm. Oh, okay. And um, But wouldn't you think that stability would, um, you know, that there will be stability in the future, inshallah? And that will bring the tourists back. Because right now, what people see are a lot of images on the news of people protesting. And so a lot of people don't want to go there because of that reason. But they think there's a lot of violence, a lot of protesting. And they just feel like it's probably not the best place to holiday with your family, yeah. with young children, etc. Yeah. Look, I'm not... Um, I, I just think that people generally don't think in that way. I mean, because they're right in the middle of it, yeah. they can't afford to think in this way. When my experience of going to Tahrir Square, it was a bit weird. Were they still protesting in Tahrir? Uh, there were there are always people there. Yeah. There, I mean, if we saw tam t uh, tents and stuff mm. uh, that looked like they've been there for a while. I, we I saw think, a rally. Yeah, I think on your Facebook page, if people go onto your Facebook page, or uh, have I have the photos on the Alchemy of Truth? Can yes, we put I've, the I've posted it on the Alchemy of Truth. Truth. Page. If they go, you'll you'll see some of the photos that uh, Northrop took with his uh, with his uh, nice little cannon. Yes, alhamdulillah. I mean, look, the rally, it was, uh, or the, the, yeah, there was a political rally there. And it was a very strange rally. Like, people just looked, they were older people. Yeah. Uh, they all looked like they were this sort of some of the same political sort of view. And they looked angry. Mm. And when we, were t when we were taking pictures, people were visibly aggressive towards us. Like, don't take pictures. They were just very distrustful of the media. Um, we felt there was a, a degree of chaos. And then, I mean, there was, for example, uh, some people selling, you know, um, sunglasses and fruits and vegetables and stuff. And there was mm. a, um, a red uh, crescent van as well. Mm. Uh, people were just sort of parked there and waiting for something to happen. And then somebody came to the red crescent van and screamed at them, you have 15 minutes to move or we're going to do something about it. When they left, I asked them, I said, why do they want you to move? They said, oh, we don't know. Well, do they represent a, a government body? They said, no, but it's just that chaotic. That mm. somebody can come can come and tell you, look, you have to leave, and then you have to mm. leave, because you know they could actually do some damage. What so, are we talking about a, like a full time occupation of a square by people, or or, or did people know. did did people go to work, or they take shifts in? I don't know. It was in terms uh, of uh, I mean, because we were there maybe for about two hours in the square, hmm. um, so it wasn't clear to us, you know, before or after what would happen. But uh, I do know that people did live there. And because as we were leaving, it was about Maghrib time. Uh, and so I saw some kid who'd closed down the road, maybe about 12 or 13. I asked him why you're closing so down So usually the road. in Sydney, you have the RTA closing down roads. But over in Cairo, you have... 12-year-old kids. Closing down roads. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I asked him, okay. I said, why are you closing down the road? He said, well, it's, it's uh, very dangerous for us to open the roads because at night people come and they try to kill us. 
couple of people died the other day. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So it, it is quite, I mean, there is always that degree of chaos. People get kidnapped, people get killed, you know, um, um, masked gunmen, you know, come in guns blazing and kill some people. You don't know who they are. What about the role of the army now? I didn't see any army. Um, I hardly mm. saw any law enforcement. law enforcement at all, even with the police. Uh, this is one thing that was very clear. Um, on the roads, there was always traffic because people were breaking any, som- any, any form of law that you can get your hands on. Uh, and most of the traffic, uh, the, the taxi drivers that were driving us were telling us that, uh, look, it's, um, it's because after the uh, Arab Spring, all the police just sort of went into their barracks and they were too scared to leave because there were many... I mean, when we were in Tahrir Square, for example, we found a burnt-out police truck. And mm-hmm. we thought it was there for a while. They said, actually, no, that was just got burnt down yesterday night. So it hadn't been there for 12 hours when we saw it. Wow, okay. Yeah, so it was, it was that dangerous for the police. And so mm-hmm. that just made things even worse because if it takes you, for example, an hour to get to work, now it takes you two hours. We were in winter, so it, summer would have been very difficult. Inshallah, the, the transition to democracy gets easier for the people. Mm. Inshallah, inshallah. But do you think the police are still reeling from the hatred that was directed towards them during Look, the revolution? Now it's very, uh, it's very confusing for them. Because at the time, I remember the army was sort of lauded as as heroes, um, and that eventually changed when people realised that you know things weren't as as they seem. But the police were always seen as you know the the villains. Yeah, um, with, like like I said, with the army, I would have expected to see more army people, but. For some reason, I didn't see anyone at all. So, and do you feel like some of these people who are still protesting or who um, are very aggressive towards the Muslim Brotherhood may have had sort of predisposed um, ill feelings towards the Muslim Brotherhood because of the whole um, sort of well, what they might term Islamist nature? Look, I, the organization? a lot of the anger that I saw there, it was sort of on-the-ground anger. There was no political agenda behind it. There was no uh, preconceived opinions. It was just my life was good and then the system changed and now my life is much more difficult and that's why I'm angry. Yeah. And so I didn't feel that there was any sort of, um, you know, politics. So there wasn't sort of any Islamophobic sort of anti-Islamic sentiment from some of these people. I don't don't think that sort of thing can be termed Islamophobic. I'm not an Islamophobia research assistant or anything. But... um, (laughs) And I don't think so. People generally are practicing. Well, you have the secularists who are sort of staunchly yeah. against anything to do with, you know, religion and politics. Or I think the secularists and the liberals, um, I think they're quite a small percentage mm. of Egypt. Maybe in Cairo they make up more of a percentage, but if you go down to the to the uh, the countryside, then... They get a lot of airtime on TV, though. That's the thing. They do. They do. But that's because they can speak English. And even uh, we went to the uh, book festival in Cairo at the time, and we found that they had a bookstore there. And they had translated, um, you know, uh, works of Marx and um, other, not just communists, but other secularist writers as well. Uh, and they seem what to comic, What are the communist books on the right-hand side of the f- <laughs> festival? I, I didn't, I no, didn't okay. uh, take notice. I should have taken notice, yeah. actually. should have been on the left. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted actually to do an interview with them for the Alchemy of Truth, but I didn't have time. But they did, like, they seem to be the only people capable of speaking English. And this is something else that was very fascinating to me is when you go to, for example, the UAE or for Qatar or basically any uh, Gulf country, if you speak English, you're respected and you're looked um, with respect upon. If you speak Arabic, you're looked down upon and you're disrespected. In Egypt, it's the other way around. If they thought that I was Australian or British, they would be very angry towards me. They'd be very aggressive. And as soon as I speak to them in Arabic... And they know I'm Iraqi, they'd be very happy, very excited. Oh, we used mm. to live in Iraq, we used to work in Iraq. At the time that Saddam was in power, we were very happy and very comfortable. Mm. And so they had always very good, and generally with with Arabs, yeah, they treated them really well. Mm. Yeah. And how was the, uh, did you visit the pyramids? Did you do any touristy things? Yeah, alhamdulillah, visit the pyramids. It's a very beautiful place. Just mm. don't talk to anyone at all. Just go visit the pyramids and leave. Because you'll have maybe about 150 people trying to sell you things that aren't for sale or give you tours for things that are open or charge you for things that don't need charging. Um, so if you can sort of avoid these people, then you will have an amazing time. Did you get a chance to visit the Cairo Museum? The yes, new, actually. The, the new Cairo Museum. I don't know if it's a new one or the old one. Okay. But um, I did visit it and I saw all the... Um, the relics from Tutankhamun. The relics from Tutankhamun and mm-hmm. also from uh, the, uh, the mummies as well. 
Mm. And these were the actual mummies. They were in in, uh, in bomb. glass boxes, yeah. and you could just look at them. Did you see the dog? They had a dog. There was a dog. Uh, I think it was a monkey dog. as well. I didn't notice a monkey either. Really, it was a monkey and a dog. I yeah, don't know. they used to um, mummify anything that they could because they wanted to take these uh, possessions with them to the afterlife. The afterlife. Wow. Yeah. Mm. So they mummified everything they could get their hands on. Embalm them. Yeah. Yes, yeah, subhanAllah. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, it was it was very interesting. Little dolls, um, chariots. Because you never know afterlife. Because you need transport in the afterlife. So obviously. Yeah, why not? Embalm mm. your car. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, museum was actually quite amazing. It was really big. It had a, a lot of amazing stuff, but it was just very um, badly designed. And so there was no map. There was no sort of line on the, on the ground that you can follow. It was just like, Here's the uh, museum with all its three floors and its hundreds of rooms. Just go crazy. So that's what we, what I did. I just went crazy. But you know what's interesting is that um, when I was at the museum, is you've had uh, pharaohs from different from the different ages, but Tutankhamun, he had his own whole level, <laughs> his whole one whole level just dedicated to the uh, the artifacts of mm-hmm. what they found mm-hmm. Tutankhamun's uh, yeah, tomb. Yeah. So no, I mean they had hundreds and maybe even thousands of little things that they found over the years. And it was just very interesting as well. Wasn't it interesting seeing the mask for the first time? Not really the mask. I think it was the faces behind the masks that I saw, which were really amazing. I mean, some of them were quite well preserved, but others, uh, something was wrong with them. Maybe the way they died or the the embalming process went wrong. So he had this very scared look, like his face was blackened. Uh, He had like a a look of extreme pain on his face. His hands were all like misshapen. It was really um, very, uh, very powerful to see it. Also, a lady fell and um, hurt her knee really badly. Oh, really? Yeah, and the security guard went to see her, so I took lots of pictures of the mummies as well, which I wasn't supposed to. I thought you said you're going to take lots of pictures of the lady. I mean, like, okay. No, why would I? <laughs> Some lady fell. <laughs> Who cares? My favorite pharaoh was Akhenaten. I'm just going to put that out there. Akhenaten? Uh, I feel like people should really know that. The uh, Akhenaten. Who is he? He was the one who sort of tried to revolutionize everything. And... um. He always depicted himself with like feminine body. <laughs> oh really? Okay. It sounds like kind of feminists. I, I, it, it sounds like everything. Yeah, some people say that he tried to promote um, monotheism. Oh, oh, that guy. Yeah, I know that guy. Mm. Oh, that guy. Yeah. We read about that guy. Back in I don't history. know. I mean, did he bring in? Did he try to revolutionise like workers' rights when they were building the pyramids? Totally. <laughs> Bit of work choices at the pyramids. Of course, of he, brought, course. he tried to bring in work choices and he was slammed for it. <laughs> Lost the next election. Yeah, it was bad. Alhamdulillah. Anyway, so that uh, comes to the end of our first um, segment. Uh, I hope people were able to enjoy my pictures and to enjoy what we were speaking about in Egypt. And I, I strongly recommend that you go to Egypt. It is a very nice place. I found it to be very safe. Of course, you know, don't go out. It would out be alone. really cheap right now too, right? It is, it is quite cheap. I think one Australian dollar is 7.6 uh, guinea, which is the currency that they have over there. People should take advantage of that. Cheap hotels, cheap, you know, cheap everything over there. May as well. No, that's that's definitely true. It's. Uh, I would strongly recommend that you go there. I, be. I, I've been there and uh, I thoroughly recommend it as well. Inshallah. Uh, and now we just uh, move back to our friend uh, Omar. So Omar is going to tell us a little bit about yeah, Allah, sorry. Omar is going to tell us a little bit about his uh, product, which is or his uh, set of products uh, under the Seer Seer brand. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that, Omar. So Seer is S W E R footwear. Um, I established the brand in uh, 2011. Um, I myself, I'm an industrial designer. I have worked in the footwear industry, uh, in particular the the dance footwear industry. Um, yeah, dance footwear. Yeah, dance footwear. So ballet shoes. Oh, um, okay. You know, dance shoes, uh, street dance, um, oh, tap wow. tap shoes, and so forth. Um, yeah, so I did quite a bit of travel, uh, sourcing different materials for um, different companies, um, and I decided to. Uh, create my own brand. Um, Where does the name Sia come from? The word Sia is a person that has strategic empowerment, who's able to to see, to see yeah. um, oh. beyond your current um, time. And it's actually the brand is inspired from the Mayan civilization, um, in particular day fifteen of the Mayan calendar. Um, well, they didn't get the calendar right, did they? <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't see <laughs> yeah. that they'd be wrong. <laughs> Um, actually, a lot of the things they did um, predict did come true. Like um, what? 
don't ask me what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, now we're getting into the heavy stuff. Let's stick to footwear. <laughs> yeah, let's stick to footwear. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my my symbol or my logo um, is inspired from um, day 15 of the Mayan calendar. And it's actually uh, pronounced as men. Um, and I so happen to design footwear for men. Mm-hmm. Um, and the 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 word men or the actual logo uh, could mean uh, wisdom. Um, so I guess that's uh, another way of looking at my shoe. Wear it and you get wiser. <laughs> um, well, so I did feel a, you know, a few IQ points uh, <laughs> coming my way after I, I slipped on yeah. those, uh, those It was a buzz, canvas. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I did feel that. All of a sudden you understood quantum physics. It was strange, you know. <laughs> Calculus. Yes. Yeah. Magic shoes. Mm. Magic shoes. <laughs> Uh, so I manufacture in Vietnam. I design everything myself um, from the shape of the shoe uh, to the patterns of the shoe. Um, and uh, basically I select the materials all myself. Um, I use mainly cow leather. Uh, I sometimes use uh, sheep leather, but uh, majority of my shoes are made from high-grade leathers. I don't use pig leather. Um, that's one that's thing good. that is... Um, overly used in this industry uh, because pig leather is actually quite cheap. Um, and there's huge issues for Muslims as well because, uh, you know, yeah, you what would say be, that what would be the you religious have to, you that? lose your wudur, you really? have to renew yeah. your wudur every correct. time you take your shoes off That's because correct. of the whole pig leather. So it's not halal to wear pig leather? Uh, I don't know the the exact um, I heard that you judgment. just have to renew your wudur, right. but yeah. you, should, you should try not to wear it. Wow, I didn't know that. Basically. Okay. Yeah, so I'm, I strictly don't use pig leather um, for my lining for my uppers um, and uh, yeah basically uh, the brand is just coming to Australia um, as I said I, I manufacture in Vietnam with my partners that have over 30 years experience in, in footwear design um, and uh, we've brought our first shipment in uh, two weeks ago so we're taking on um, uh, orders and, and so forth. For for people that, for the un- uninitiated, I mean, yep. they just go out to the store and they just pick out a pair of shoes. I mean, what's the process involved with actually, um, like, uh, no, I mean, from the concept design that you sketch yep. till the final product, how long does that actually take? Uh, it takes quite a while. Um, what are we talking like? Three months? Six months? Well, from, uh, from concept to from from concept to from development, ske- from, from yeah, from sketch to final product, uh, it takes from conceptualism, um, sketching on 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 paper, uh, to actually making the shape of the of the shoe. Uh, I have to actually go overseas and 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 get that CNC'd um, and uh, source the materials. It can take up to six months to come up with a full range. That's a long lead time between uh, seasons, I guess. Yeah, but that's why you need to work. um, You need to be very strategic in the way that you present and you you produce your your range. So you obviously do it before the season. You know when the season is um, and you create it for that particular season. And how how do you work out exactly what, what the people want? Uh, based on international trends um, and also I think people will tend to uh, react to your your trends and your own style of, of, of shoe design um, so really it's it's more capturing semantics from European designs um, I am inspired greatly by some of the the designs come out of Tokyo um, and I incorporate some semantics into my own design and my own style, and uh, that's how I come up with my designs. Do you try and predict the trends, or do you just look at it and think, "Wow, oh, that's rubbish"? There's the, yeah, there's a lot of things out there that mm. um, really surprise you. Like, how can yeah. this go into production because it's hideous? Yeah. Um, but a lot of the time is uh, is taken from. Um, trends yeah uh, European trends um, mm. because Europe is really the, the central um, uh, central mind of, of, of shoe design but do you go to the trade fairs in China and stuff and not so much China I'm I seems like they have a lot of footwear there yeah they do yeah. Uh, it's a lot of that stuff is very standard um, mm. I tend to go more towards the stuff that that um, actually 
has um, design focus. Yeah. And China is an industry that just produces the designs that come out of Europe. Yeah. So I, that's one of the reasons also I, I don't go to China. Um, mm. I tend to stay with the European styles. Um, so can you tell us if we wanted to have a look at uh, your range of footwear? And I'm just noticing that you're not wearing your shoes. You're wearing something. Tokyo? Wearing a Tokyo um, inspired design at the moment. Mm. Um, only because I do also like other designs <laughs> out there. <laughs> not just my own. So if we did want to have a look at uh, your designs, where would we go? I can see that you have uh, facebook.com slash footwear. Do you have a website as well? Yeah, uh, our website is www.seafootwear.com.au. So Sia is spelled S-W-E-R. We also have, as you said, Facebook. And you can uh, basically check out the collection on, on the website um, or you can uh, send us an email on info at crfootwear.com.au. You can make orders uh, via email or uh, just telephone. You can personally call me and you can talk to me about the styles as well. Um, can you custom make shoes? I can, but custom made shoes is quite uh, expensive. expensive and yeah. it's a... It's a laborious task exactly but we can also make shoes in australia there's a few yeah. manufacturers out there that can make shoes mm. um uh, but so what's uh, your price range like yeah good question um <laughs> anywhere between uh 109.95 yeah. uh to 170 169.95 yeah. that's pretty affordable yeah it's what they pay in the you know, sports shoes, shops and stuff. Mm. Yeah, so the, the, the full leather shoes generally are the most expensive. Yeah. And then it just goes down after that. And no pig leather, that's good. And no pig leather, that's correct. 100% pig leather free. Jazakumullah. Yeah. Hello, Hello Thank you very much. So we're just going to have a uh, break of a few minutes and then we will be back, inshallah, with the alchemy of truth. And we're back with Alchemy of Truth. This is your host, Nasr Khatib. And we were just listening to uh, Muhammad Al-Hisayan, a uh, local Emirati Munshid. And the Nasheed is Al-Burda, or Mawlai. Uh, yes, so now uh, with our new guest, uh, who is uh, Asma Fahmi, who is going to be uh, talking to us a little bit about think tanks. So can you first of all describe what a think tank is? Think tanks have been around for a while, I, uh, I guess it's the 19th century um, they were used heavily during um, the war um, where they would they call it like the, the thinking room or the think tank room where they would discuss strategy um, which to war are we talking war. about I'm thinking you know World War One, World War Two. okay um, and basically these days they're spreading around everywhere so they're definitely on the increase it's a place where um, people do research and advocacy mainly to do with social policy or it could be political strategy or you know to do with economics the military technology um, and a lot of this research is in, when published is used um, can be used by the government um, informing policies um, and strategies um, but a lot of the some some think tanks are actually funded by the government. Some are independent, some are left leaning, some are more conservative than others. I'm I'm sure you've heard of the Lowy Institute, yeah. the Sydney Institute, which yeah. is more conservative. Um, you know, you've got well famous Brookings Institute. You've got the Doha Institute. I mean, you've also got, for example, and this is when I first got uh, my exposure to think tanks. Is sorry, I completely a lot of them are institute. <laughs> they have it's called the Blah Blah Institute. Or they have really sort of um, are we elaborate about names. Local or no, no, or it's, it it's an American uh, think tank, and they were the first ones who came up with the idea of dividing Muslims into five uh, different Muslims. So you there's have a, the there's like the, the right wing ones. It's like the AEI, the American Enterprise no, Institute. R and D, Rand, Rand, that's right. Rand Corporation. Yeah, yeah, Rand Corporation. And so basically, they came up with, and this was like back in the nineties, before September eleventh, even, where they would say they said that, for example, you have the secular Arabs, uh, Muslims, sorry, who basically had no faith in Islam. They were just cultural Muslims and they're the ones to work with. Then you had the Sufi Muslims who were like very passive and they're very good to work with. Which then is you not have, true. I mean, um, if you look at the history, you find that a lot of, there I'm have been a lot not of... not trying to bag Sufi warriors. No, but just, I'm just saying like, you know, I'm yeah, no, a or anything yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at that research. I mean, this, this brings me to my question. 
uh, can think tanks ever be um, unbiased? Or are they always yeah, uh, trying to assert an agenda? There are independent think tanks. Um, but look, a lot, of, a lot of research has been put out in the past. It's been, you know, has raised a few eyebrows, such as um, there was the research that came out that was, because business can also sponsor this, can also sponsor this type of research. So you had, I think it was William Morris that um, sponsored, um, actually, delete that because I could be wrong but you had a corporation trying to prove that there is no link between uh, lung cancer and smoking Um, so obviously they had an agenda Um, so you know definitely there is research where they do have an agenda and you know um, but there's definitely um, you know you've got the Brookings Institute which is well respected Um, a lot of this you know um, stuff that comes out you know affects foreign policy, domestic policy, um, government do keep their eyes peeled, especially when it's credible research that's come out. How does the, um, how does, how does the, uh, the think tank work in terms of, um, and the government work? How does it, um, where, do that, where does it fit into government policy in terms of uh, findings that uh, uh, a think tank makes? Well, it could affect the way that they do things. So if they have, um, you know, if they're dealing with a specific issue and they need to sort of, then they're feeling that they're probably not successful in regards to this issue, then they know that there needs to be some changes. And so the research goes out um, and then the findings tell them exactly where they need to move, which direction, whether they need to go into a different direction mm. or not, etc. So who can get involved in a think tank? Is it just sort of any, any Tom, Dick and Harry or is it actually people who are chosen sort of like secret societies from what i know there's you know there's um sort of an animal slaughter ritual that goes on and men in hooded masks no no um, <laughs> i mean this is important because these think tanks in many ways I think they usually get hired or sort of you know there, there will be a researcher of you know who's doing their study and then they'll hire um, somebody to help them out and mm. then this person is hired by the institute mm. etc so it's a normal sort of process but Definitely people who are sort of academically inclined are more likely to be working at a think tank. Okay. Um, so in a, I guess you could say, in a democratic society, how does a think tank work? In a democratic society? Well, you have different types of think tanks. So, you know, um, for me personally, if I hear of a specific think tank, I just my brain automatically goes uh, right wing I'm not really going to listen to what they say mm-hmm. um, because I this, just don't find them credible that, I mean you, you might call yourself an educated person in think tanks and how they operate but with everybody else there seems to be this incredible credibility that if a think tank comes out with a research then that research must be the truth you know what I mean oh you can definitely criticize the research um, that, that's open the, you know a lot of the times when research is published or when it goes out into seminars and whatnot. Um, you know, people do have their say and sometimes you find that um, the research didn't use many people in the focus groups but they're using percentages, um, you know, which is what happened. Um, this was more, uh, this was affiliated with a, with a university so it wasn't specifically um, a think tank per se where there was research that came out about the Muslim community and there were some people who said, well, how many people were in the sample? And they said, well, it was 30, 30 people. They said, you have come up with these claims um, with only 30 people and you're using percentages. So there was a lot of criticism towards that. That's an example of how um, you can sort of speak out against um, research that you disagree with, I suppose. Uh, we're just going to take a quick break because it's now time for Adhan Lesha. And we are back with the Alchemy of Truth. Tell us about the think tank um, experience you had. You were telling me earlier. So with the R&D, uh, Rand Institute, yeah. this was the first time that we found that there was a institute out there that had lots of credibility, that were coming up with research we knew was wrong, and they were trying to, um, I guess, influence public policy. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of the wars that have been happening, um, you know, with the Iraq war, for example, with a lot of efforts to push for a war with Iran, for example, these are based on uh, recommendations by think, um, tanks. by think tanks. I mean, mm. I think it was Richard Pearl who said that um, in Iraq can be invaded with 40,000 uh, troops and that yeah. the Iraqis will be welcoming um, the troops when they come into Iraq. 
And so all these ideas, of course, are very clearly false now. But at the time when we nobody knew what was going to happen, these think tanks were influencing public policy. Yeah, and they did actually successfully. And also in England, um, you had a university student also influencing Tony Blair's decision. University student. Yeah, he right. um, pretty much lifted. They found out that a lot of the facts that he was using came out of a paper, a research paper by a university student. And then this student came out and said, hang on, that's my paper, mm. you know. And that, so he was basing his decisions on that. And, and it caused a huge furor over there. And, yeah, it was just Proud of you, Tony Blair, for you. He's, he always takes the, uh, the shortcut. Well, that's cop, an example cop, cop. of how these governments can mm. sort of pretty much um, grasp at anything. That's right. That sort of suits their um, agenda. So then um, tell us, Esma, how does the research from a think tank become part of government policy? Um, basically, if it, uh, the research comes out, it can influence their decision-making processes, depending on whether they've, um, you know, a lot of the times they may be partnering or very interested in the results and have a have a sort of say in how it's formed in the first place, formulated. Um, and so, and then they use it to sort of influence their uh, domestic policy, foreign policy, whatever policies that they're using that research for. Based on what you've seen, I mean, how entrenched is it in terms of uh, think tanks we in Australia? In, in, in Australia, are we are yeah. we still new to this, or no? We have quite a few in Australia. Yeah. Um, we have quite a few. Um, a lot of co- conservative, um, you know, left leaning, um, independent. Um, like I said, you've heard of you know the Lowy Institute, the Sydney Institute, um, Melbourne Institute. It's quite a few actually. Um, what about like if the Muslim community wanted to create a think tank and to have that think tank actually be uh, effective in uh, presenting the Muslim or representing the Muslim community? How realistic is that looking at the resources the Muslim community has now in Australia? It's possible. I mean, you know, would you have, you know, like I, I've been surprised recently with what the Muslim community has been able to achieve um, in the last few years, you know. Um, you know, I don't want to give a plug, but Crescent Wealth, for instance, did you ever think there would be, you know, hmm. um, you know, com- Sharia compliant or superannuation? Um, so, you know, you, you never know. I would never say never. But um, but if you look at globally, uh, you know, there are think tanks all over the world um, in the Middle East, but especially in Israel. I was very interested in how many there are in Israel. Quite a few, actually. It is quite interesting as well because their um, policy is generally quite aggressive towards the Arab countries around them and towards the mm. Arab people, population inside them. So I, I wouldn't expect that they would have, they would need uh, think tanks. And so that's something I guess that um, bears researching. But but they exist. So, mm. you know, I guess that's something for people to look into. Now, there is another example, and this is what I was talking about when I say that uh, some uh, researchers or some think tanks actually can have uh, such incredible uh, credibility that people just take whatever they say without checking the veracity of these, um, you know, of the facts or, or the claims. Uh, so we're actually going to talk to um, uh, a researcher at Macquarie University, uh, Gabriel, and I'm going to butcher his name. Um, I apologize, Gabriel Maranci or <laughs> Maranci or something. Um, is an anthropologist uh, based at the Department of Anthropology in Macquarie University with an honorary senior affiliation at Cardiff University Center for the Study of Islam in the UK. And in his writings, he mentions uh, a, a think tank called the Future Directions International, which released a report called Hezbo Tahrir in Australia, Urgent Need for International Engagement and Counter-Narrative. Uh, and so we have him on uh, Skype. Hello. We are live on Hello. Uh, hi, uh, Dr. Moransi. How are you? Uh, not so bad. <laughs> oh, Working. Good. Thank you for inviting me here. It's, it's our pleasure. Um, so, yeah, um, what I wanted to speak to you about was your writings on the Future Directions Institute and how you were able to uh, not refute even because it didn't bear refutation, but actually discover how um, the, the claims of this institute was completely wrong because the person who wrote the research uh, had no credibility mm-hmm. because he had n- none of the uh, qualifications that he, he claimed to have. No, no. Well, he, he was a kind of master student at my university, by the way, Macquarie University. Well, uh, one of the, the interesting things, it's not the first time, as maybe you might know from my blog, that I have a clash with think tanks. I mean, in the United Kingdom, 
there was a very big scandal by research done by a think tank called Policy Exchange. And if you go in my blog, you can you can read over this cash. And also the the author of the paper actually replied that time to me. And there was a quite interesting um, debate that then he handed on a BBC, and there was an an investigation. And the investigation confirmed all my point that this falsified practically the research. It was in this case was actually Dr. McCoy. is actually he has nothing to do. He writes novels practically, and it is um, it was um, really not uh, an expert in the side it was uh, doing the research. Here we have the same situation. Future Direction surprised me. Um, I have not received any answer. I have not received any engagement. The paper is still there, mm -hmm. and that probably is the worst part of the story. Practically, what I've done it, I've read the paper, and of course I found that was without any substantial um, elements, and then I start to research this guy, and research what has written before, and practically, as you can read in my blog, is nothing. I mean, there is no. They are publishing a person that has just, you know, write things by googling here and there, and this is very serious. There was also another uh, person I remember very clearly. His name is uh, Rohan Gunaratna, and he was uh, mm. from Sri Lanka. He was an expert on the um, Tamil Tigers but all of a sudden he came out and he claimed to be an expert on Islamic terrorism and because mm. I mean uh, there was no one out there who knew much about Islamic terrorism they took him and they believed everything he said and so he would come into Australia uh, regularly at some point and he would say you know Australia has a very a large danger there's potential <laughs> terrorists and nobody everybody believed him even though he had no backings or no background in Islamic uh, anything to do really with Islam as a, as a, a scholarship? Yeah, in Australia there are very few experts actually. Um, there, there is no a terrorist expert. There is not something like that. People can claim to justify courses in becoming a terrorist experts in university here there. But you know there is actually sociologists, anthropologists, political scientists. You come from a particular discipline. You cannot create yourself. A, unfortunately, has happened a, a terrorist expert. Um, um, one of the problems is this: the majority of these people tend to the right in think, in think tanks um, has no contact with the community, has not done really any uh, direct research, and it's very upsetting for people like, for example, me, who spend time in in academically doing research and maybe has less possibility to let the general public to know my. My funding. This is the reason why I start my blog, where I start my podcast. I try to communicate about it. Mm. But, you know, unfortunately, more and more money, public money, as well as private, are directed towards think tanks. I mean, I have just started, I tried to start a center for research on contemporary Muslims' life at Macquarie University. Mm. They're just starting now. Well, we will see what happens. But you know, the, the issue is that donations and public funding often are direct to these think tanks because they can be manipulated, used easily for political reasons. Why it's not very easy to talk, to manipulate me. So academics are much more difficult to, to bend to the necessity of, of a political game. Dr. Maranchi, I also ask you the same question that I asked Asma before. Uh, if Muslim organizations or Muslim collectives here try to create a, um, a think tank, uh, can this think tank, do you think there is a possibility that this think tank can successfully represent Muslims? Because we have now a problem with Muslim representation. Well, the problem, in my opinion, is that every time you brand something like Islamic or Muslim, inevitably in a majority of non-Muslim society, will become marginalized and ghettoized. So, in my opinion, is that the Muslim community will be better to start to collaborate, work together. For example, we've established centers and so on that become more influential in a way of engaging, but also funding. Uh, research that is useful to the community. If we create a little, little niche, of course, will be discounted as a form of new ghettoization. Oh, well, they are Muslim, they say that kind of stuff. You know, as you know, every time happens. So the idea is how to enter, how to influence the, the mainstream in a correct way uh, without, you know, trying to produce something that is separate, but it's very easy to to discount as a lobby based only, you know, Islamic, Muslim, or particular group. The second point is that the Muslim community is very divided. Uh, we know very well, 
as in other parts of the West country, but also in Australia. So who's this going to represent? Um, and question will be so even within the Muslim community. So my suggestion is actually to try to uh, engage strongly with what is my mainstream and try to help um, research center and universities so on to understand what is necessity as a research. Because at the moment, the majority research on, 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 on Muslim is directed by mass media, so what the scholar thinks can attract funding because, uh, you know, it's a big topic like hijab and niqab and all the same stories, women. And, and the other is directed by political interests, so terrorism, security stuff, and so on. All this stuff is often becoming useless and doesn't give back anything to the Muslim community. All right. Uh, Dr. Maranci, thank you very much for your uh, time and for your contributions. And we hope to have you with us for a full show to be discussing sure. uh, the research that you, you're doing. Because from my readings of your blog, um, you're, you're you know working on very interesting things. And I'd love to uh, you know get your input on it. No, thank you very much. It's only one year that I arrived in Australia before it's been among other humas. And mm. <laughs> uh, I hope that, uh, that, that there will be that there's my intention is to um, help to develop research that is useful and not, you know, just um, spectacular or, you know, attracting certain kind of um, attention. Definitely. We wish you all the best, uh, Dr. Maranci, and uh, have a great weekend. Thank you very much. Wassalam. Alaikum salam. So that was Dr. Gabriel Maranci, um, who spoke to us about his work, um, you know, um, refuting. Uh, engaging and challenging uh, think tanks and um, the, I guess, the destructive uh, effect that can have. What, what are your thoughts about this? Uh, he made Masma? some valid points. He made some valid points about, you know, the Muslim community being divided. So um, what kind of a think tank is going to represent all facets of the Muslim community? Um, and that perhaps Muslims should get involved with established think tanks. But then the issue with that is sometimes you're not exactly in control um, so if the research is to do with the Muslim community and you have people who are not embedded in the community making all the decisions, sometimes, you know, it's 50-50 where those decisions go. Yeah, it's going, um, it's going to be very challenging. There was a research that came out, I think, two days ago. Also, it, this wasn't by Think Tank, I don't think it was by committee, a government committee or something. And the results of this research were quite abhorrent. Um, and they basically were acting on the same stereotypical rubbish that, you know, the lay people would have about Islam, uh, which is, you know, that Sharia is just about cutting hands and niqab and, you know, all these things, you know, like whenever anyone would try to, for example, bring in uh, Islamic banking or, you know, Islamic mm. wills, people start freaking out. So this was a, a government committee. I was very surprised that they came up with results like that. And I just think it's quite dangerous um, if we don't get Muslim think tanks or more balanced think tanks at Well, least. they have a Muslim think tank in the UK and they seem to be doing all right for themselves. I don't want to say okay in general because, quite frankly, I which haven't really the, looked at all their papers. Which is the think tank in the UK? It's called the Quilliam. Quilliam Institute, yeah. Yeah, Quilliam, Quilliam okay. Institute. No, I haven't heard that one. Okay. Mm. It's quite a popular name in the UK. You've got Quilliam, Quilliam Press, you've got the Quilliam Institute. What does Quilliam mean? That's yeah, the question. It maybe it's like Qalam. Qalam. Ah, yeah, maybe. Maybe it's like a British guy trying it to say Qalam like, or something. I think it's like a name. They just named... Like the McGregor Institute or something. Yeah, it could be. Um, well, we uh, come to the end of our show. Um, Already? Unfortunately, yeah, I know. It's wow. been an hour. I know. It's been a roller coaster, hasn't it? But, covered a uh, range of topics. Talked about Egypt. Yeah, talked about shoes. Talked about think tanks. Alhamdulillah. It's, it's been the quite... full spectrum of uh, yeah. variety there. Inshallah. Mm. Next week, we're going to be talking about Muslim book clubs. Not Muslim book clubs, just book clubs. Yay! Yeah, for the Muslim book club, the hipster yes. Muslim book club. Is that this still is, going this on? This is one of those, yeah. We just finished our second book. We're starting which, with the which third book. book? Second book was uh, Samarkand by Amin Malouf. Okay, good. Samar is that the history of Samarkand? It's, uh, it, no, all our book uh, club uh, titles are fictional. Oh. But there is another uh, Muslim, uh, like a girls' book club, and they yeah. only read like Islamic material. So there's two a stories. girls' book club? Yeah. So there's yeah. two. Book clubs happening at the same time, simultaneously. I mean, I'm guessing there are many book clubs happening, but no, the but ones from the same <laughs> from the same organization. No, that's no, being no, established. no, 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 no. I see that I'm doing two interviews. One yeah. with the oh, book okay, club okay. that I've made, and the other one is with just a bunch. I of I think sisters. I'm part of your book club. 
Wow, well, you, you made a book club? You don't write, uh, you don't read our titles. Well, because, you know, I'm very precious about my books, so I can wow. be a bit pretentious. I'll, I'll start recommending Russian authors or, you know, Joseph yeah. Heller, or, and then people will just read it and go, what, what was I thinking? Now, uh, if you are interested in that, uh, I think you go to facebook.com slash hipster Muslim book club. Yay, hipster Muslim book club. And 14, yeah. what's the date? 14 what? Isn't there a date on it? I don't know. I oh, yeah, yeah. established 14 something something. I don't yeah, know. established 14. Is Dr. Seuss part of the uh, range of uh, books that you will be reading? Anyways, uh, so that's going to be <laughs> our show next week, inshallah. And we have uh, Those many books other books are shows. amazing, okay? Don't knock them. Seuss. Inshallah. So um, we would like to thank uh, Omar, first of all, for coming in and for showing us his beautiful shoes. Thank you, uh, Omar. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for your genius, Omar. Jazakallah. Thank you for giving Omar. me the free pair of shoes that you're going to give me later on. <laughs> As he rolls um, his eyes. Also, thank you to uh, Sister Asma Fahmi for coming in and for giving us uh, very, very good um, information and insights on, on what a, a um, think, think tank is. Making and you think about think tanks. Making us think about think tanks. Wow. Wow. Hey. That's, that's, wow. Deep. that's deep. You that's just deep. ruined it. I should be the yeah. president you of the book. You just yeah. ruined it. <laughs> right. Uh, yes, thank, so thank you very much for coming at such thank a late hour. I hope you have a car. No, I walked. You walked? Yeah. In, in Lakemba? No, in, uh, I walked Fairfield for about... You think I walk? I live in yeah, Lakemba. Just because I wear a hijab <laughs> does not mean I live in Lakemba. <laughs> yeah, of course not. Of uh, course I drove. <laughs> inshallah. And also thank you to uh, Amr, uh, our co-host, uh, for co-hosting. Thank you for having me, Nelson, and look forward to another exciting episode inshallah. Uh, next week. And now uh, Hamoudi is going to uh, see us off. Hamoudi, would you Yay. like to take the honors? Hi, Nasir. Long time, Nasir. Oh, thank you, Hamoudi. <laughs> <coughs> thank you for watching The Alchemy of Truth. Listening to The Alchemy of Truth. Make sure you tune in next week for more entertainment. InshaAllah. Thank you very much, Hamoudi. So this is uh, the uh, host of The Alchemy of Truth, Nasr Khatib. Thank you very much for listening, for contributing. And we will see you next week, inshaAllah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bye-bye.